0: Welcome to PB and Justice, the Price Benowitz podcast, where you join our hosts, Dane Phillips and Mitch Greenberg, on their journey to prove what makes our lawyers different and why our lawyers have chosen to pursue a life of fighting for justice. This episode is hosted by Mitch Greenberg, the law champion. Sit back and enjoy the show.
1: Well, hello, this is Mitch Greenberg coming at you with our Price Benowitz podcast, and our first guest is Tony Munter, our esteemed whistleblower key TAM attorney. Before we get to Tony, a little bit about me. I am the head of our workers' compensation division. I've been with the firm for a little while now, and uh, I look forward to helping everyone in the firm get to know everybody else. So, Tony, how are you doing? All right. How are you? Wonderful. How's, uh, how are you doing during the COVID experience?
0: Well, it's a little challenging like it is for everyone else, but uh, fortunately we're able to continue doing business, which is a good thing. You working from home or the office? Uh, I've been uh, at home for a couple of weeks now, um, which is kind of interesting because my clients are, are all over the place and I'm, I'm more or less used to dealing with Uh, folks at great distances um, and filing all over the country and that sort of thing. So in terms of day-to-day stuff, uh, I'm mostly able to function very well with uh, a tip of the cap to our staff that actually is still in the office helping us out, as you know. It's amazing.
1: They're still in. They're still working hard. Yeah. Uh, So
0: about you, how did you get started as a lawyer? As a lawyer, uh, I was doing other stuff all over the place, uh, mostly uh, organizing work. And I went to school at night. I knew I always wanted to be a lawyer at some point. uh, But uh, I went to school at night and managed to bang it out in three and a half years, uh, going to school semi full time while working. Um, So, you know. Uh that's, that's how I got into it, I guess.
1: How did you happen on that,
0: this area of law that very
1: few people know about?
0: Well, uh, that's kind of a bizarre story, actually. I was coming back from abroad. I had been a corporate immigration lawyer uh, while living abroad. I was following my wife, who was an international journalist. And um, I came back here and ran into some folks who were running a whistleblower law firm, And they were mostly focused on protecting and defending the rights of whistleblowers who had been uh, prosecuted or attacked or lost their jobs, all the terrible things that that can befall a whistleblower. And they had not really focused on uh, a practice centered on whistleblower rewards. At that time, uh, there was really only one, uh, the False Claims Act. And they had filed maybe one or two cases Uh, but they needed somebody who was uh, willing to bring those cases and and, uh, file those cases uh, initially. And this is going back quite a ways now, when the law was relatively new. And uh, so I did. And since that time, um, there's been many more uh, false claims acts in the States. There's been uh, four-ish uh, depending on how many you count as successful ones whistleblower reward programs added uh, so the area of, of law has expanded considerably uh, since I uh, first got into it around the country how prevalent are these cases that's a really good question because uh, to hear the defense bar talk about it you know there's thousands and thousands of false claims that cases is filed Uh, And in reality, it's not true. Um, uh, Federal False Claims Act cases, there's only about 700 filed in a year. And some of those are repeats uh, because they're filed under seal. So if you have a great case, you may not know that somebody else has at least a similar case. So it's really not, when you consider that it's a country of 300 million people and a federal budget of several trillion dollars now the fact that that there's only 700 cases filed in a year give or take a few uh, really isn't that many when you're talking about the uh, defending the budget of the United States of America now so you mentioned federal do the states have their own whistleblower laws yes uh, thirty states now I believe at least thirty with Oddly enough, a couple of counties and a couple of cities also having their own false claims acts. As of 2010, you can file those as a consolidated action if it's one consolidated set of facts so that if a company is somehow managing to defraud the state of, let's say, Massachusetts while also defrauding the federal government, you don't have to file separate claims. But... Uh, for some of these states, uh, which have pretty expansive false claims acts, like the District of Columbia, like Massachusetts, uh, I believe also Maryland and uh, Virginia, but I'll check. Um, uh, you can file separate cases if they're only defrauding, say, the District of Columbia.
1: So if someone works in a company. How does a false claim act typically come about a, a case? How does a whistleblower ultimately come to you? What's that process usually?
0: You know, unfortunately, usually they come to me in duress because usually somebody who has the knowledge and of a company and what a company is really doing, um, even when it's medical, uh, sometimes you get nurses a lot, but, but it, it has to be somebody who's had some experience within the company to really know enough to know that they're committing fraud and usually they're very upset um, either they've gone to the boss and the boss has fired them or they've suddenly discovered that the company's committing fraud all over the place and they're very upset by it um, so usually whistleblowers come to me in a, in a state of some considerable and understandable anxiety so, as I say, Mitch, you know, people usually are coming to me with some duress. Sometimes you get uh, folks, particularly in healthcare, who've uh, heard about this law a lot because the majority of federal cases involve Medicare or Medicaid or some form of government healthcare program. Uh, sometimes those folks come to me and they're not in that position. They're, they're folks who are nurses or doctors who have, um, let's say, an outside source of income or their own practice or come into contact with um, drug companies or a medical device provider or something that they know to be committing fraud and report it. So, so it's not always the case that my clients are hit with an almost life-altering event But for many, they are. I mean, you know, if you've been working for a company even for only a year or two, your livelihood depends on them, and, and now you understand they're doing something really wrong, that's difficult psychologically to deal with, even if you haven't been fired. You know, you're going to work every day trusting that the people that you work with are good people. And then you find out that they're doing something Uh, really wrong. And and I guess I want to emphasize the fact that these laws aren't for like petty technical, you know, violations and parking tickets. You know, this is fraud we're talking about here. It's a pretty heavy thing to accuse a company of. uh, But unfortunately, it does go on. Do most people come to you before they contact the government? Uh, Usually, sometimes not. Um, It's not a problem, really, if they've contacted the government already, uh, but it is something I need to know about, uh, and uh, in particular, if the government is going to take some kind of immediate action, that that creates some issues. Um, Quite often, people come to me after they have gotten involved in some other kind of legal action that is also against the defendant that they want to come after. That can be um, a complicating factor. It doesn't have to make it a, an impossible factor to proceed, but, but all those kinds of things are, are things I have to find out about, of course, at the beginning of uh, representation.
1: So I imagine, I'm picturing a situation, you have a high-level employee, mm-hmm. someone in the company, Sometimes, skills, yeah. mm-hmm. and, um, and they're involved. I mean, they are involved in this for some period of time, Mm -hmm. I guess they have a crisis of conscience uh, Mm -hmm. and then they decide which compels them to do something uh, to go to you to go to the government don't they have some fear of repercussions of charges against themselves and how do you deal with that when they are at risk
0: Well, when they're at risk, I'm, I'm, you know, when they really have committed a crime or something, I'm fortunate to be working at a firm with many a good criminal lawyer that I can talk to. Uh, I don't pretend to practice criminal law, and and that's uh, one good reason to, to be coming to us if you really feel that way. I would say, though, that it is really unusual. I know of only one case, really, where a whistleblower came forward and was also prosecuted criminally, and and that whistleblower um, came forward first to the criminal division. Um, and there's some murky stuff about why it is that guy got. Prosecuted. Now he happens also to have been an IRS whistleblower. Okay. And also collected, you know, hundred million dollars as an IRS whistleblower, the largest collection ever. You know, that was obviously for many reasons a really, really unusual case. The the standard to collect as a whistleblower is that one comes forward voluntarily. Before you're contacted by the government, uh, you have to come forward voluntarily and. And then the question is, did you commit a crime? Are you being, you know, you can't collect if you're a criminal. It can be reduced uh, if you are planning and initiating the action so-called. So that's really where it comes down to. Did you plan and initiate the fraud? If If you didn't, if you're very high up in the company, but you were directed to do it, you're not you're not likely um, to be prosecuted and you are still eligible to obtain an award for reporting it. and you know this goes back to the sort of the history of the law way back in 1863 the the idea was uh to get so-called co-conspirators to to talk about so so there's some history of, of allowing whistleblowers to come forward uh, even when they have um, been involved. You mentioned the
1: criminal defense aspect. I actually, uh, I do criminal defense too. And years ago, I handled, I uh, had a guy who worked for the Department of Defense and he was a major purchaser, uh, major purchasing authority. And mm-hmm. in that department and his job, it was fascinating at his level. Everyone caps out with salary, they'll have limits. In his department, the way they got around that was that if you were offered a job by a private industry, for one year, the government would boost your salary by 10%. Okay, you get one offer, you're 10% up for a year. Wow. So, of course, every single person always had an offer because (laughs) these are very bright people, right? (laughs) Well, where the whistleblower comes in, uh, apparently someone in his chain, was unhappy with his treatment. I think lost his job, went to the government because this individual didn't just call his buddy and say, hey, my year's almost up. Give me another job offer. He put it in writing. He actually ooh, sent a letter. Uh, yeah, that would have been a bad mistake, yeah. Someone that smart to do something like that I, to this day. But uh, the government was really pissed off. And yeah, I never believed it. Sure. I being in DC in federal court for sentencing. And it's just like, uh, and I, I said, Judge, this is the way the office works. This is what what people are supposed to do. They're supposed to have offers. This is how you keep the talent for the job. What my guy did wrong, he put it in writing, which is silly. Yeah. So, um, do people need to have a lawyer to? To file a false claims act?
0: Yeah. In fact, there's some uh, states, uh, I guess you could include the District of Columbia, uh, that does not uh, uh, allow you to file or at least not allow you to maintain a case on a pro se basis. And the reason, or at least the thinking behind that, is that a False Claims Act case uh, involves uh, the government being the real party in interest. You know, you're suing, you're not really suing If you're retaliated against, you can sue for your own retaliation as part of it. But the the gravamen, the basis of a false claims act case, is fraud committed against the government, and it's the government's damage that you're seeking to recover. So for that reason, they want to see a a a lawyer's name attached to it. You know, I mean, we're lawyers, and we would say, you know, any serious legal matter, you want to hire a lawyer anyway. Uh, but in this case, there's a little bit more weight to that. In addition, some of the whistleblower reward laws, the uh, Commodity Futures Trading Commission and the Securities and Exchange Commission each have whistleblower programs that you can uh, uh, report uh, fraud, and it's a different kind of fraud, of course, but you can report fraud to those agencies uh, and try and get an award. If you want to do that anonymously, you have to go through uh, counsel, so uh, from, you know that's obviously very attractive to some folks. You know, if you're a commodities broker and you're making 1.2 million a year, you may not want to blow the whistle publicly right away. You may want to go anonymously, uh, and you may want counsel for any number of other reasons as well. To be anonymous, you have to uh, hire counsel and 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 work uh, with a counsel to file a case.
1: So you so there's KETAM, there's whistleblower, there's false claims, are they all the same thing? Uh,
0: no, uh, KETAM uh, is, um, uh, I guess I, I, I wince a little bit because I, it, it, it seems to me that us, uh, a bunch of lawyers got around and decided to make something pretty simple sound pretty complicated. Uh, KETAM is, is a Latin, it's from a Latin phrase And the phrase means he who would would sue for himself as well as the king. It comes from Middle England, and I guess back in those days, you could prosecute people on behalf of the king. So they brought that concept over here in the 1860s when they first came up with this law. And the False Claims Act, the Federal False Claims Act, includes so-called Ketam provisions, which include that right of an individual to file a case in court on behalf of the government. Uh, Now, whistleblower reward law, which I would argue the false claims act is part of, not all of them do that. I mean you can file a securities and exchange commission claim, but you don't have the right to go to court on that. That, Then you got to, you sort of have to persuade the securities and exchange commission to take action. You don't get to go to court on your own and say, I'm suing on behalf of the Securities and Exchange Commission under that program. With the False Claims Act, you do. You, you, you can go and say, I'm here under the KETAM provisions. And if the government doesn't pursue the case, uh, you can pursue the case in court uh, like a private attorney general. Um, but if the government does pursue the case, why, then you get a cut. You still get the cut. Uh, you get a lesser cut. You get a higher cut if the if the government doesn't pursue the case and you pursue it and succeed. Now, obviously, the chances of succeeding under the False Claims Act if the government pursues it are exponentially higher than if you try and pursue it by yourself. But still, there's a right there, and 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 the fact that you have that right to go to court, I think, more or less, forces everybody to take. Very seriously, the filing of a False Claims Act case, it's not like just a tip you, you throw into a government agency and see what happens. I mean, you're filing a case in court, you know, and a federal judge is going to look at it. Um, everybody kind of wakes up um, uh, to the seriousness of that. And in my experience, uh, the Department of Justice investigates the merits of them uh, pretty, pretty seriously. I don't imagine the DOJ
1: loses often.
0: Not often. They do on occasion, but not often. They're very conservative about which cases they take. They don't like to lose. Um, But also there's a certain, I don't know, respect that they get that, you know, let's face it, private attorneys may not uh, be able to say they are the United States government, Uh, and they are convinced that uh, somebody committed fraud. Um, The other thing, of course, is that um, they are allowed to conduct their investigation for some period of time before um, a traditional uh, discovery process and litigation process will occur. Is that when it's under seal? That's while it's under seal, and they can extend the seal, um for good cause shown, and in practice they do for for a year or a year or two years sometimes longer and during that time, you know the the government can get issue civil investigative demands, they can have the FBI go out and get information. so really, when the government takes action in these matters, Uh, even to uh, bring a forceful settlement demand against the defendant. You know, that defendant knows they're up against some serious issues because by that time the government will have a pretty, you know, well put together package of what it is that they are demanding from the defendants.
1: So you and I have uh, the distinction of leading departments of one in the firm yeah, yeah. <laughs> one whistleblower yeah. lawyer and one worker's comp uh, yeah. Right.
0: yeah yeah you feel lonely sometimes I do i you know i it's nice because there are a lot of lawyers in the d c office, and every once in a while i'll ban- I can bounce stuff off with of them. Uh, I feel particularly lonely because my cases are under seal, so right. you can talk about them yeah. to anyone who isn 't party to them. Uh, on the other hand, I co-counsel a lot. I work with, um, uh, I, I, you know, I know a lot of whistleblower lawyers, and I know a lot of employment lawyers, and it's not at all unusual for me to take the whistleblower part of the case and work with an employment lawyer who takes the employment law part of the case. Uh, it's not at all unusual for me to co-counsel, and I enjoy that very much, Um Uh, I do feel a little lonely sometimes, but there's another aspect to this, which I'm sure you, you come across this too. You know, you're signing that complaint, you know, at some point you got to read it all anyway, you know, I mean, it's, you know, you still have to know, there's no shortcut on that. Um, And, and you know, I come to law from doing organizational work, where the whole idea was to get somebody else to do it. And in some ways, uh, the discipline of being on my own is good, is good to so, say, you know, you're in a boat, you're on your own, you can't, you know, no one's going to just come and paddle it ashore for you you got to do it yourself and and to that extent um uh, I, I, i'm happy with it but you know i'm i'm also grateful i mean we have guys in the office that do can do some routine stuff for us and you know we have some resources too so that's good
1: we do have some resources i found out well i've been with the firm since october i found out a couple months ago that we actually have an investigator on Stanford. yeah yeah how about this how yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah. That was not explained to me in, in the onboarding process.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, it can be very helpful. Uh, and and uh, you know the, I, you know my stuff is kind of weird. You have these like huge filings you got to do that, that sort of sort of like Christmas or, or Hanukkah or whatever you like. You're you're sending off a giant present to the. So it's nice to have the 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 uh, administrative support as well. Uh, so with what
1: frequency do you actually try a case? Try a case?
0: Uh, uh, I've been involved now in, I guess I'm involved in a like three trials. I don't know that I've been the, the, the lead trial lawyer. Very infrequent. These cases, I must have filed 50 cases under the False Claims Act. Uh, two have gone to trial. Uh, they just don't go to trial very often. They settle. Um, I don't consider myself a trial lawyer. My rule on that is: um, I'm going to try to attract trial counsel if it goes to trial. If I can't attract trial counsel to help me do the case, it means we shouldn't pursue the case. Okay, that's my 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 standard line to clients. Uh, I consider myself. Uh, capable of and uh, very um, versed in the False Claims Act, in representing clients uh, through the process of filing it and hopefully persuading the government to pursue it and working with the government to settle it and obtaining our fair share from the government. Uh, All that can take years. Uh, If the case actually goes to trial, um, and uh, the government is not trying it principally, um, I would want to to uh, co-counsel with, with uh, trial counsel. And as I say, if you can't get, you know, there's a lot of trial counsel out there looking for work on a big contingent fee case. Mm-hmm. If they're not going to bite on it, it probably means there's something wrong and you shouldn't pursue it. And one of the, the reasons to have that test as a counsel, you have to fall in love with the False Claims Act case to file it in the first place. So by the time three, four years from now, and you've developed this relationship with this client who's, you know, and you've been with them every step of the way, and, and um, I mean, you're not objective or as objective as you, as you might otherwise be at that point. I mean, you know, you fall in love with the case, you really like the client. Um, you, need, you need an outside look at that point too, I think.
1: So you have someone who comes to you, they have a decent case. Uh, they've been fired, they lost their job. So they have no income. The case takes a few years. Is there any way, does the government help to support these witnesses?
0: It's a really interesting question Mitch because the the False Claims Act bar has just been uh involved in uh discussing and determining whether we can uh, obtain funds uh from private uh sources to support litigation under the False Claims Act. Okay. So, you know it's a the the Department of Justice seems to frown on that. Uh, even when the case has gone to trial or or um, uh, so, so survived motions to dismiss, they, they, they don't uh, particularly like it. Uh, it doesn't make any sense to me why the government would care uh, whether or not a private relator is able to find an outside source of income to support their litigation. But for whatever reason so far, um, it just hasn't... Gotten the support that that I would would like, the the obvious part of this that does support litigants in this area is that the False Claims Act, um, you know, allows for us to file on a contingent fee basis. It also allows us to sue for attorney's fees um, in addition to whatever is collected on behalf of the government. Um, so that makes it possible for clients to come to us and at least not, you know, get hit with major expenses of bringing a case in order to um, try and file their case and be successful. As you say, however, um, that doesn't um, uh, affect the fact that you may be dealing with a client who's out of work for a while. And uh, that's, that's not a great position for anyone to be in. So you know that, and
1: you can't do it in workers' comp, but in personal injury cases, uh, you can't loan your client money, but there are companies more than happy to give them incredibly high interest loans against the case.
0: Yes, I know that. And as I say, the False Claims Act Bar is looking into that. There's been a lot of stuff recently about that. Um, Looking into it now, there have been these cases for years? Well, there have been these cases for years, and there have been offers from these cases there. What there hasn't been is a lot of success with respect to either the funders or the people accepting the funds having successful actions. Hmm. So that's what makes me a little nervous about it. And there are some problems with it with respect to handling it uh, carefully, while the case is still under seal, you know can you can you go out and you know it seems like you can 't really do it at that point, so you have to do it right up front when you 're first filing the case prior to it being sealed or after it comes out of seal um, uh, as a principle though, uh, I think it should be allowed, and i don 't know why it isn 't, um, but I also know that the Department of Justice is not written down anywhere but the Department of Justice isn't excited about it. And in everything in this um, practice, um, you have to take that into consideration because you are ultimately hopeful that the department will support your case. I mean, if you know, the chances of success just... Um, I mean, it's just it's ridiculous how much higher of a chance of success you have if you can attract their support. So the fact that they're a little... And it's not a reason i mean it shouldn't it doesn't interfere with their rights that that at but it does appear that they don't love it. I don't know how to put it you know i can't I wish I could cite a you know case for you, but it doesn't work like that you know it's just the word on the street
1: so if uh your partners in the firm or any other lawyers out there who might be seeing this or people who might be seeing this uh, what should and they wanted to refer you something, what would you be looking for? What's the perfect case they could send to you?
0: You know it's really interesting because um, what I'm always looking for is something that gives you a visceral feeling of fraud. you know it, it, it's it, you know there's a million laws out there you can violate, and there's all kinds of government regulations and all but but if it if it hits you in the gut, that, that the government's being ripped off or investors are being ripped off or uh, somebody's cheating on their taxes and millions and millions of dollars. If you if you really feel that, chances are it's, it, it, it's a good case. Now, most of the successful cases in this area are in healthcare. Uh, there are uh, two or three big reasons for that. One, obviously the government spends a ton of money on healthcare. The other is all the government does is pay for it. They don't, they don't have a role in um, administering it. Uh, so the government isn't in the room with the doctor or the nurse or the prescriber or uh, the manufacturer of a, of a, of a uh, medical device. So they don't know when these companies are paying kickbacks or they don't know uh, what's wrong necessarily necessarily the way they might in a defense contract, there's usually somebody from the defense department overseeing that contract. So that relationship makes it sometimes easier to prove the fraud in healthcare than in some other areas of, of government work. But nonetheless, there's, you know, huge fraud in many different areas of government work and um, there's huge fraud in securities uh, stuff. I've, I've got a case right now where they, it's public, so I guess I can talk about it a little bit, but where they basically oversold, uh, you know, um, oil uh, uh, interests. And, you know, the guy walked away with money. I mean, it's, it, it's not any more complicated than that. I mean, it was just, you know, flat out stealing the money. So, I mean, if it's, if it's like that, if you can tell me why it's fraud, you know, in a sentence or two, because it's so egregious. Chances are, it's going to trip a lot of laws and regulations. So, how did that case come up? The the person who blew the whistle.
1: How is that person situated?
0: That person was working in the firm uh, that did it and saw it and saw how bad it was and contacted a lawyer in in, in another state. Um, I guess I, sh- you know. I've, and it's public, but it's not that public yet. It hasn't been fully resolved. Um, but anyway, yeah. I mean, they called me because I knew something about whistleblower law, and we filed the case. And it's been going on and on and on. The government's collecting the money, and sooner or later, we'll hopefully get <laughs> it
1: So, how much has these uh, have these quarantines? The courts being shut. How much does that affect your practice?
0: Uh it does not it doesn't. You know, my practice, each case takes a long time. So in the context of a case taking a long time, um, I'm not sure that it adds that much time to stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, the Department of Justice is um, otherwise a little occupied in some instances uh courts are a little uh uh tied up mm-hmm. um i have a couple of cases where extensions um were supposed to be coming to an end in cases which are going to get extended is my guess longer for the investigation right. to, you know so um it's probably a matter of delay for the ongoing cases I've had, I'm surprised to tell you, uh, a few inquiries over the last week as to new cases. I wouldn't have expected that. I, you know, since nothing's going on, but I, but I have, you know, the volume's a little bit lower, but on the other hand, you know, there've been a couple of good ones. So um, uh, it hasn't affected it day to day too much. It has slowed stuff down. There is a directive from the, Uh, acting director of U.S. attorneys not to collect civil fine money uh, till May 31st. Um, I um, find it interesting that they don't want to collect money from people who owe money to the government as a result of fraud, but be that as it may, they are not preventing liens from being attached or other actions being taken to protect the government's interests. So I don't think it will have a major impact on anything. Excellent. Well, listen, thank you
1: so much for spending the time. Uh, mm-hmm. I enjoy talking to you. And uh, we're going to sign off. This is Mitch Greenberg, the law champion. Uh, any last word, Tony?
0: Yeah, let me know when I get to
1: interview you. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, have a great day. You too.